The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, please open them up to the book of James. The book of James chapter one is where we're gonna be today. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. So I'd love for you to grab one of those. You can open a phone or a tablet to James one. Uh, if, you, if you grab those black ones underneath each chair, uh, James one is on page 1011. Uh, if you're opening your own Bible, I don't know what page it's on. So you gotta figure that out. James is towards the back of your Bible. Okay, but uh, James is where we're going to be. James chapter one today. Uh, Welcome to the first week of our fall sermon series in James. This is week one in James, and uh, we are going to walk through this fall the entire book of James. Okay, this is the primary way we preach here at Fathom. Okay, so just so you're aware, uh, we, we primarily at Fathom preach through the scriptures, sometimes verse by verse, sometimes chapter by chapter, and that type of preaching is called expository preaching. That's what we do here. We just kind of preach through books of the Bible, and then from time to time, we'll do a little topical sermon series that we just kind of throw in there. But basically, expository preaching just means this. It means that my job as the primary preacher of Fathom Church is to expose the, the word of God to you. That's what expository preaching is. It's just leaning on the text and exposing the text to you. And so essentially I'll read a verse and then I'll tell you what I think it means. And then I'll read a verse and I'll tell you what I think it means. And then, and then that'll remind me of some dumb story from my life. And I'll tell you that. And then I'll go to the next verse. Like that's just kind of, that's just what we are going to do here at church. Okay. That's what I do. And that's what it's, that's why it's going to take us until Christmas to get through four pages of the Bible. It's just, it's going to take us a while. All right. So it's my job to expose you to the word of God. That's my job. But now hear me. It's the Holy Spirit's job to expose the word of God in your heart. It's my job to just kind of open this thing up and march us through the text and share what I've researched, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to do the heart work of illumination for the scriptures. I cannot do that. So if you've ever learned anything from any preacher, okay, you've actually learned it from the true preacher. You've learned it from the Holy Spirit, not from any person who speaks God's word to you, okay? Only he can change you. Only he can open you up to what God has to say to you in the text. And, and, and so this is what we're going to do, okay? The, the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word, would do to your heart and my heart what only he can do. That's what we're going to do here at Fathom. That's what we're going to do here all fall. So today we are preaching James chapter 1, and we're only going to do one verse today. We're going to do James 1, 1 today. That's all. Okay, type A's in here, just exhale. One verse. That's all we're doing, okay? And I promise we'll speed things up as we get going a bit more. But today, just one verse. And though it may not sound like much, there is a ton to break down in this one verse. So, James, chapter one. First, who's the author of this book? James, yes. If somebody had said Paul, I was gonna quit, okay? Just, it's over. All right. It's James, okay? James, chapter one. Look at your text, first one. You can skip the big, huge name at top, okay? First one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. That's James chapter one, verse one. So who wrote the book? Yeah, James. James wrote 
this book. The question we need to do some work on is which James? Because there's a lot of Jameses in the Bible. The writer of this letter doesn't give us more than his name. He says, this is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. No last name. Okay, no accolades. He's not like Paul who gives us like a list of all of his accomplishments and all of his failures. That's what Paul will do, right? Pharisee of Pharisees, studied under Gamaliel, right? Persecutor of the way, way, shipwrecked a billion times. Like that's Paul. James is just like, I'm just James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So which James are we talking about here? Well, we need to do some work, okay? Because there are four Jameses in our New Testament, there are four Jameses, uh, and we need to work through them, okay? So, so this is a lot of back work. I promise, though, this is important stuff, okay? James. The first James in the New Testament is a guy named James, son of Alphaeus. James, son of Alphaeus. Who's that, you might say? Good question, because not a lot of people know about James, son of Alphaeus. He was one of the 12 apostles. So he's one of the big 12, Okay, the 12 closest to Jesus. We find his name, James, son of Alphaeus, in every list of the apostles that we have in the New Testament. So he's there. In fact, this summer, as we preached through Matthew's gospel, when we came to Matthew chapter 10 and the list of the apostles, I preached about James, son of Alphaeus. And you know what I said about him? Nothing. I read his name. Because that's all we know about this guy. You can be a part of the 12 apostles, by the way, and still be relatively anonymous to history. That's a good, that's good news, by the way, for, for most of us who will essentially be average human beings for the rest of our lives. <laughs> that's not a slight. That's us. That's, that's, that's who's in charge here. That's who in God's economy is important. Who's important in God's economy? Yes, every child is important, but so is God. God's name is what's exalted, not James, son of Alphaeus. He, basically, we know nothing about him. The only thing that I found about him this week is, uh, is that James, son of Alphaeus, in Mark chapter 2, uh, when Mark uh, d- describes Jesus calling Levi, who's actually known as Matthew, when he calls him uh, in, in Mark chapter 2, it says that Levi is his name is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Okay, so now there's no way of knowing whether this is the same Alphaeus as James, son of Alphaeus. Maybe Alphaeus is like an, a New Testament name like Mike or David. And he's just like, yeah, that's Dave, and that's Dave, and that's Dave, right? So maybe that's what is Alphaeus is a popular name. I'm not sure. But if that's the same guy, maybe this James and Matthew were brothers. There's, you know, there's a couple of pairs of brothers in the apostles. Could be. Noah, it's interesting. This is Bible knowledge for the sake of Bible knowledge. You should know these things, okay? There's just no reason, though, to believe that this James, the James son of Alphaeus, uh, would have written this letter. There's no evidence to credit him as the author. It's not impossible that he did, but there's no reason for us to assume that he did. There are better choices. So that's the first James in the New Testament. James, son of Alphaeus. Second James in the New Testament is James, the father of Judas. Now, Judas was another of the 12 apostles, and I'm not talking about the Judas we all know, Judas Iscariot. Did you know there were two Judases in the list of apostles? Okay, there were two Judases, which is a real bummer if you're second Judas. Because for the rest of your life, you're just like, someone introduces you, you're like, no, 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 not that Judas, I'm the other Judas. I'm the other guy, okay? In Luke chapter six, that guy is called Judas, son of James, son of James. So this James is the father of Judas, uh, father of one of the 12 apostles. He is even more obscure than James, son of Alphaeus, and therefore there's no reason for us to credit him with the writing of this epistle, okay? 
Those are the first two Jameses. Now we move into potential candidates. The third James is the James we are most likely familiar with in our scriptures, and that's James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee. Again, another one of the 12 disciples, but this is a pair, okay? James and his brother, John. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. These guys are also known as the sons of thunder, okay? The best nickname in the Bible. Sons of thunder show up, thunder, Uh uh right? Like that's what, it's just the sons of thunder, okay? Peter got called the rock. These guys are the sons of thunder. It makes me even more sad for doubting Thomas. (laughs) Doubting Thomas has got to be like, are you kidding me? One bad day and for all eternity, this is how I'm known. Rocky, sons of thunder, doubting Thomas. Really? Like, I just feel bad for Thomas. I've made that known. But this James, James, the son of Zebedee, son of thunder, we know a lot about this guy. Okay, he's in the inner circle of Jesus group. Inner circle. He, J, P, uh, Peter, James, and John are like his three within the 12. They're like his tight bros, okay? He's in the inner circle, So this guy certainly has the chops to be the James who wrote this epistle, okay? Except, except we know from the Bible that James, the son of Zebedee, was one of the first apostles martyred. One of the first apostles killed after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So in Acts chapter 12, you can actually read the account that James is killed by Herod. He's killed, So even though this James could have penned this letter, uh, his early death makes him pretty unlikely. Like he had the, the pedigree to do this, but it probably was not this James. So we come to the fourth James in our Bible. And the fourth James and most likely candidate to be our author is, is James, the brother of Jesus, the brother of our Lord. That's this James. Okay. Now James was essentially the half brother of Jesus. We know he's a half-brother because they don't share a similar father. You following me on that? I mean, I went to public school, but I even, I got that one down, okay? James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. Okay, we find out about he and his siblings in Mark chapter 6. The, the, the crowds in Jesus' hometown are astonished with him, astonished with his teaching, and they ask this. I'll put it up on the screen. Mark 6 Where did Jesus, this man, get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? I don't know why they named their third son Judas, but they did. And are not his sisters here with us? So so Jesus, he's the big brother to James and a bunch of other siblings, okay? But James here, now here's what we know. He's mentioned first in this list and in any other list with the siblings of Jesus, which most likely means he is the eldest of the brothers. He's probably the oldest brother, second to Jesus. So he and Jesus would have been the closest in age of all of the siblings, okay? How many years difference? We have no idea. We really don't know. I couldn't give you an exact, but we can surmise that they probably weren't that far off from each other because in order for Mary to have that many more children, she must have gotten to work pretty quick after Jesus was born. I mean, it's just how it works, okay? So, so, so we, need, we need to picture this, okay? Jesus and James are raised in the same home. They very likely shared a bedroom, maybe bunk beds, I don't know. 
right? Of all of his brothers, James might've been relationally the closest to Jesus since they're probably closest in age. Now, what did James think of his brother, Jesus? What did he think of him? Well, we have two records of, uh, of, of their thoughts. And, and, and first, we find that after Jesus begins his ministry, he starts to gather quite a following, okay? Uh, and in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, here's what his family thinks of him. When his family heard it about Jesus and gathering this big group, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind, So Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. They really do. They think he is crazy. They went to try to get him back to control him. Like his family, they don't believe in him. They try to grab him and have him institutionalized because listen, that's what you do when a member of your family thinks they're God. You do the same. You really would. And then in John chapter seven, Jesus has amassed this huge following. And in John seven, five, we find this verse for not even his brothers believed in him. This is after miracles. This is after preaching to masses. They didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy. They wanted to stop this bizarre behavior from their brother. And it makes complete sense, right? It actually is a great, it is a great uh, encouragement to my heart that Jesus' brother didn't believe in him. That should encourage you at some level because if you were raised in the same bedroom as someone, uh, it'd be pretty difficult to ascribe deity to them, right? I mean, who's got siblings? Okay, I've got a brother, I've got a brother, and I'll tell you what, it would take an awful lot for me to start worshiping the Lord, Matthew Martin. (laughs) I mean, he'd have to pull out some really impressive tricks, for that to happen, right? So, so, so how does James, the brother of Jesus, get to the point where he could write a letter that starts with this? I'm James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he get there? Well, in order to answer that, we need to see what happens to James after Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. So Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, I'll put this on the screen, but you might want to turn there if you'd like. Acts chapter one, I'm going to read this out. This is verses 12 through 14. Acts one, 12 through 14. It says, then they, this is the disciples, okay? The disciples returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day, a Sabbath day's journey away. So this is after they have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and watched him ascend up into heaven. This is what happens. They leave the Mount of Olives. They head to Jerusalem and verse 13, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Fun fact, that's all four of our Jameses in one paragraph. But I love that last line. The brothers of Jesus are with the apostles in the upper room. I don't know if I've ever noticed that before. 
The brothers of Jesus are with the apostles in the upper room. And this is where the church, the movement that, by the way, we are here being a part of today, but the church will be birthed from that upper room. So how is it that all the brothers are there? How is it that when Jesus was alive, they thought he was crazy and didn't believe in him, but now they're in the upper room and they will be a part of launching this movement that is the church. How did this happen? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the answer. So if you want to turn there, you can turn there. If you don't, I'll put it on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15. This is the apostle Paul and he says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse seven, then he appeared to James. Jesus revealed himself to James in a personal post-resurrection revelation. And I think that's precisely why James is in the upper room. Because he saw the resurrected Christ. I mean, I said it would take an awful lot for me to believe that my brother was deity. He would probably have to die and then stay dead for a few days and then come back from death and like eat some fish with me. But then I'm pretty much signing on, right? So let me make my first point from the first verse of James. The resurrection changes everything. (laughs) The resurrection changes everything. What you believe about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the most important things that you believe. And we see right here that, that, that with James, if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. If the tomb is actually empty, then his brother might just be who he said he was. He's not crazy. He's not worthy of institutionalization. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Pastor Andy Stanley uh, says that the way to understand something is to go back to its starting point, which is actually kind of helpful to think. Like everything has a starting point, okay? Every job has a first day. It has a starting point. Every relationship, every living thing had a starting point. You had a starting point. Some of you were started on purpose. Some of you were as a big mistake, right? (laughs) Everything has a starting point, okay? Romances, they always have a starting point. Some of you remember like your first romance, your very first romance. Mine was when I was four years old. And I thought I was going to marry my cousin, Amanda. And I'm thankful that I grew out of that, right? (laughs) But everything has a starting point. And now hear me, your faith journey has a starting point. There was a start, even if you don't remember it, even if it was so, happened so young in life, you still had a starting point to your faith. And James, his real starting point is witnessing the resurrection of Jesus, The resurrection changed everything for this guy. In fact, church history will tell us that James believed in the resurrection for the rest of his life. He never recanted this thing. 
It's astounding that the brother of Jesus never recounted or uh, turned back from following his brother. Okay, he will be martyred. He will be thrown off a tall building. He hits the ground, doesn't die, and they have to come and bash his head in with a club. And he never turns back from his profession of faith. The fact that the, that the closest brother to Jesus witnesses the resurrection of his brother and gives his life to it gives some authenticity to this. So our text says he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never changes his story through his whole life. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah. The resurrection changes everything. I, I just can't get that home enough. So this is the James, okay, brother of Jesus. Uh, I think it's the, the writer of this letter, but really just because um, I've given you some biographical information, it does not prove that he's the author. We need maybe a little bit more, okay? Uh, he's, I think, the most likely candidate, but we need a little bit more, and we have a little bit more, okay? So, so James, he has come now to faith in Jesus, Post-resurrection, he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and now he found some, finds himself in the upper room. Okay, Acts chapter one, he's in the upper room with the other apostles. And it isn't long before he's a very important part of this church movement, of the new church. Okay, and so in Acts chapter 12, in Acts chapter 12, I've already talked about Acts chapter 12. What's happened between Acts one and Acts 12 is immense persecution has broken out against the church. This happens in Acts chapter seven with the stoning of Stephen. So all of the Christians, they, they, the, the, the Jews come and they kill Stephen at the hand of a, of a young Pharisee named Saul. And then there's persecution that, out, that breaks out against all of the Christians and they scatter. All the Christians scatter. And now in Acts chapter 12, th- there's persecution, heavy persecution. I've already mentioned that Herod has just killed James, the son of thunder. Okay, James is now dead in the beginning of Acts 12. And right on the heels of that story, after he's killed, Peter, the apostle Peter is imprisoned. And you might know the story if you were raised in church, but the church gathers to pray that, that Peter would be released from prison. So they're having a prayer meeting at the church. Peter's in prison. An angel miraculously breaks Peter out of prison. And then when Peter shows up to the prayer gathering to be like, ta-da, good praying, right? When he shows up to that moment, this is what the text says. Acts chapter 12, verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. So Peter says, silent. He described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James. And to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. So James goes from the upper room to becoming the focal point leader of the church at Jerusalem. Okay, that's the, the, all important information goes first to James and then to the other brothers. James, if we can borrow a contemporary term, is like the, the lead pastor. He's the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. First church, Jerusalem. Legitimately the first one. He's the pastor there. It's un- understandable at this point that James would have this accolade. I mean, he was raised with Jesus. He knew him better than anybody, probably. You can imagine what renown he had as the brother of Jesus. So now he's the one who appears in a very prominent position. Now, uh, one other place, okay, in Acts chapter 15, in Acts 15, we find what's known as uh, the Jerusalem Council. In Acts 15, we find what's called the Jerusalem Council. This happened in about 49 AD. uh, And what they're trying to decide here is that there's some decisions needing to be made concerning the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. Can Gentiles be saved or not? 
They weren't sure. So they have a church meeting. That's what Christians do. When we're not sure, we just gather together and we have a meeting, okay? So they have a church meeting, the Jerusalem council. And when all the arguments have been made, all the arguments have been made, yes, the, the Gentiles can be saved. No, the Gentiles cannot be saved. Well, what happens? Acts 15 uh, verse 13 says this. After they'd finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. And he makes a ruling. Gentiles can become Christians, which is great news for you and me or most of us, okay? Because most of us are Gentiles. James, again, is the key leader here. The key leader at a key moment of decision-making in the church at Jerusalem. He presides over this council and we'll find out later in the chapter that he writes, he pens the message that is going to be sent to all the other churches to tell them that the Gentiles are in fact part of the church. Now, tradition tells us that James will be the, the, the senior pastor, the lead pastor, the main pastor or elder in the church of Jerusalem until he is martyred in 62 AD. And I've already told you how that happened. Okay. So why do we think he wrote this letter? Why do we think he wrote this letter? Let me give you a few compelling reasons. First, that he rose to such a position of prominence in Jerusalem after the resurrection, uh, which was the hub of this new kind of church movement is, is good credit for this guy. I mean, we have today churches that are kind of movement setting churches. There are big churches, right? Like everybody wants to know how these churches do small groups, how these churches do preaching, how these churches do leadership development. Ain't nobody asking us about that, right? We just got coffee, took us six years, okay? <laughs> We figured it out. But to, be, but to be the prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem, in the most prominent church in this very new movement, James must have had some sway. Must have had some sway. That's first. Second, when you compare the writing style, the letter writing style between the book of James and the message from Acts 15 that is sent by James, the brother of Jesus, the senior pastor of Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem council, when you literarily compare these two, it's almost undeniable how many linguistic similarities are to be found between these two letters. Okay, most scholars find it very difficult to discredit that these two documents share an author. And then third, number three, James, the older brother of Jesus, here's, here's my, my favorite argument. He just fits the best. He just kind of fits the best. Occam's razor, uh, put simply, states that the simplest solution is almost always the best solution. Okay? And this James just makes the most sense. He just makes the most sense to me, okay? Like another way that we could determine the authorship is to consider who the letter is written to and like when a letter is written. Like, who is it to? When was it written? Well, who is this letter to? Our text says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So that means that it's written to the Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes, in the earliest days of the movement of the church. But it's been dispersed to the dispersion, which happened after Acts chapter 7 in the stoning of Stephen. See, the church had, had grown up in Jerusalem and then it spread when that persecution started. And that happened about 44 AD. And because this letter was written to those 12 tribes that had been spread out into the dispersion and there's no indication that Gentiles are included in this. So that means it probably predates the Jerusalem council in 49 AD. We can date this book somewhere between 44 and 49 AD. I know this sounds like it's not meaningful, but it is. Because that's the peak time when James is the pastor at the church in Jerusalem. It just fits. 
One last thing. This also makes this the oldest of all of our New Testament books. The book of James, dated that early, 44 to 49, is the oldest text that we have in the New Testament. This predates everything that Paul wrote. This predates the gospel accounts. This predates the gospel of Mark. So I think we can say that this letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus. Now, you having fun yet? Because I am. We can keep going. The bounce house I've got rented for a few more hours, okay? <laughs> you might know, if you know anything about James, you might know that there's a little controversy surrounding this, this text. There's a little controversy about this book of James, specifically a theological controversy about the balance of the doctrines of faith and the doctrines of works or deeds, faith and works. This is one of the major themes of this book. And it's famously known that the great reformer, Martin Luther, you know, the guy who nailed the theses on the door at Wittenberg, okay, that guy, that Martin Luther, he did not like the epistle of James. Well known, he didn't like it. In fact, I found the actual quote from Luther. Here's what he said. Therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw, compared to these others, speaking of Paul, okay? For it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it, which is harsh. Martin, okay? (laughs) So Luther calls this an epistle of straw. But I think to understand it, we have to understand the worldview that Luther was coming from. So Luther was coming from a medieval Catholic worldview, with a hyper-focus on the value of works and deeds to merit one's salvation, not faith. And so when Luther, he's reading Paul, and he's having this great awakening about the doctrine of justification and his emphasis on like justification by grace through faith alone, and then he reads James, and James starts adding works and deeds into the mix, Luther just kind of loses his mind. He just kind of loses his mind. But I just think it's helpful to consider um, who this text was written to. I think it actually helps us work out some of these kinks because it's not, the, the book of James is written to Christians. It's not written to unsaved people. James does not in the entire book. He doesn't deal with the essence of salvation. There's nothing in this book about the crucifixion of Christ, his resurrection, nothing about the deity of Christ, nothing about the doctrine of justification, nothing about regeneration, how one gets saved. These are not mentioned at all. He doesn't even cover them. And here's why. Because they're all assumed. He is assuming that the readers of this letter are Christians to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. To those who already believe, it's clear he's writing to this group of people. So the underlying assumption is that you have people who claim to already have faith in Christ. He doesn't explain what it is to be a Christian because he assumes they already are. Now, whether that's a problematic assumption or not, I'm not here to judge, but he assumes these people know the gospel and they have already believed in faith alone in Christ. And here's where I want to make my second point from this passage this morning. The resurrection must change you. The resurrection changes everything. For James. And the resurrection must change you if you're to get anything out of James. Before you can get what he has to say in this book, you have to deal with what you believe about Jesus. 
Listen, in this series, we're going to talk at length about this whole faith works theology, okay? But, but, but this morning, if you have not been changed by the resurrection, like if you've not been convinced, like James was, that Jesus is who he says he is, like if you haven't submitted your life to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, and you join us for the next three months to study this book, you will learn a whole lot about how to be a very moral person who is still destined for hell. And if that sounds harsh, I'm sorry, but go back three weeks and listen to the hell sermon. Okay? You you will be a very moral pagan. You'll be a very moral unbeliever. See, the obedience and the works that James is going to call us to, listen, cannot save you. It was never expected to. If this book is going to make any sense to us at all, then first, the resurrection must change you. You need to be saved. So this is your chance, okay? Series is going to be great. This sermon series is going to be amazing, but you need to be a Christian to get out of it what you are meant to get out of it. So have you been changed by the resurrection? You can sit in church for a long time and never be transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. You might even sense God beckoning to you today in that. You're like, man, if James believed, then maybe, maybe I could believe. And I just invite you, just jump in with us. You can pray today, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. I need you. I believe in you. I want to follow you. I submit to you. Be my savior. Be my Lord. And it will, I promise you, it will change the next three months as we study the book of James. The resurrection must change you. Okay, that's all. That's all. That's James chapter one, verse one. That's why we preach primarily through books of the Bible, okay? Expository sermons, all that from one verse. And listen, y'all, I had to cut a bunch, Like, I didn't even get to some of this other stuff in that verse, okay? I could have kept going, but for the sake of time, we're going to end. And and, and now, I don't know if you know this or not, but, but most church growth specialists say that you don't spend your fall, the best time to grow your church, going verse by verse like this through a book of the Bible. It's not like the the gold standard of how you grow a church in the fall, okay? They tell you actually to market something more attractional to your church at the launch of a new season. So, so, you know, deal with a felt need in a real creative way and and keep the sermons kind of short and snappy. We're way past that, right? Uh, And that's how you're going to draw a crowd. That's how you're going to draw a crowd. So I thought about it. We could, we could do this, okay? We could just take some, some pop culture things and kind of Christianize it, okay? Uh, For example, take the, the TV show Stranger Things, okay? Season four is coming, Season four is coming to Netflix next year. Uh, So let's just say today you came to church. uh, We sing a couple of songs. Somebody reads some scripture. I get up here and I go, "Um, okay, I want to start a sermon series today and I'm calling it Danger Things. (laughs) And for the next five weeks, five short weeks, we're going to cover five really dangerous things to you. And the first dangerous thing that we're going to cover today is debt. Okay, and then from there on, I preach five sermons that cover five danger things, okay? And maybe I link a half a verse of scripture from some obscure minor prophet to why danger is bad and why debt is bad and all this stuff. But then I say, like I preach for 30 minutes and then I say in my conclusion, and that is why debt is a danger thing. Let's pray, okay? And then we pray, all right? Um, And then as I go down, the band comes back up and Amanda comes up, she grabs a guitar and she says, guys, I just wrote this song this week. The spirit was in me. 
and it's called Debt Danger. And then, <laughs> and then she starts playing and she sings and she sings, if you've got four bucks, but you spend seven, Debt Danger, right? Like if she does that, <laughs> the record comes out next week, okay? And then just on your way out, just to kind of remind you about the debt of the danger of debt, uh, you get a bumper sticker or a t-shirt with that logo on it and you're expected to wear it and come back next week for the next danger thing. Like we could do that. I mean, this uh, was not hard to create and I could come up with five dangerous things and, and we could do that because here's the truth. Debt is dangerous. It's true. Or we could spend 45 minutes on one verse that shows us that the resurrection changes everything and that calls us to believe and be changed by the resurrection. I know what I would prefer. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now you're ready to study the book of James. So verse two, next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the, the gift that your word is to us. That as we heard read over us, that every word is, is breathed by the spirit. That every word is good. It's good for correction. It's good for reproof. It's good for building up. It's good for encouragement. Thank you that every word of this book is true. And then it points us to, to the way that we can live and it points us to the God who we should live for. As we embark in this journey to see what your servant James has to teach us, Lord, I pray that we would be amazed by the resurrection once again. The only way that it makes any sense that James, the brother of Jesus, is worshiping his brother and giving the rest of his life to his service is if it's true is if he really did die on a cross and if he really was buried in a tomb and if it really happened that three days later he came back to life and, and people bore witness to that. Lord, we believe that. Help us in our unbelief. Help us in our doubt. And now help us to have eyes to see the great gift that the epistle to, uh, of James is. Lord, take us deep, so deep this fall as we study this book. We love you, Father. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit.